Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Leading in a Crisis podcast. On this podcast, we talk all things crisis management with a goal of making you and us better leaders in crisis situations. And we deliver that through interviews, storytelling, and lessons learned from experienced crisis leaders. I'm Tom Mueller, and with me today is my co-host, Mark Mullen. Mark, how are you doing today? Doing great, Tom. Nice to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Well, we have a really interesting guest with us today. He is Ed Thompson. Ed is a very experienced crisis leader who, um, unlike many of us, has experience both on the agency, the federal government side, as well on the industry side. So he's seen crisis management from many different viewpoints. So we're really looking forward to hearing some of Ed's uh, stories and lessons learned from incidents that he's worked over the course of his long and industrious career. So Ed, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Tom. Ed, I'd like to talk to you for a minute about training issues. And I know you spent many years in the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard is known to do uh, crisis training for its staff. You've worked for large energy company uh, who also spent a lot of money doing training. There's a lot of small operators out there, right, who don't have the human resources to do a lot. You know, what's your guidance for helping leaders in an organization prepare to lead in a crisis? And, And how do we train people to do that? Wow, that's a big question, Tom. Well, first off, trust your people to answer questions. And, and what I mean by that is a, a lot of times we get used, used to in corporate world in particular, uh, some, some aspects of government as well, where uh, you have talking heads that uh, I, had, I had one uh, public affairs person make the quip that, you know, we look like idiots, so you don't have to kind of thing. <laughs> um, whereas, whereas honestly, I think the the people closest to the incident that know what's going on should, can in many ways be some of your best spokespeople, so long as they know their boundary. If you're a, a tactical leader at a particular site conducting a certain tactical operation, there's no one on planet Earth that knows more about that particular aspect of the response than you do. And so your boss should trust you to speak to that and should also coach you to know when to say, that's that's outside my my boundaries. You have to go talk to somebody else. And there's no shame in that. That training, I think, is easy to achieve. Compliance with that training can be spotty because once people start talking, some of them can't shut up and other people uh, can't get started. On, on that and, and want to shove it off. So you, you've got to, you got to find the people that are, that know their boundaries and know how to speak in public and use them so that the incident commander doesn't have to be everything to everybody all the time. Subject matter experts that you know and who can speak in public without embarrassing the agency or the, or the company, spreading out some of that load, I think is important to success, being trained for that because people like you, Tom, and, and you, Mark, have have a, have a world of experience on how to uh, encapsulate information and, and, and get it across. 
the training aspects are just huge. And you've, you've highlighted a couple of important issues here. One is, you know, have subject matter experts who can speak and knowing your subject matter is one thing, but then getting a little media coaching is another thing, right? Going through a media training program in an agency or in a corporation, putting your people through a media training program like that goes a long way to, you know, increasing their comfort level. Because I'll tell you, on some of the large incidents that I've worked, you know, we deploy people who never thought they were going to be deployed out into the field to help manage an incident. Right. And those are folks who would be back in the office and say, well, I don't need to do this training because I'm not going to be a spokesperson for the company or for the agency. And yet when a big one hits and we're pushing everybody out to the field to help us communicate in local communities along the, you know, wherever we're impacting. Now, all of a sudden, that person is a spokesperson and everyone needs to have a little bit of of training like that. Yeah, you're so right, Tom. I do have a quick question for you, though, and that is, would you do this again? If you were called back, would you go back into the hot seat? There are aspects of response that invigorate me. You you can't describe, and in in many cases, it's inappropriate to say how much you love going to a response and solving a problem and feeling like you actually made headway against an intractable problem. There's a great sense of satisfaction in that. Uh, And you make friends forever Uh, to the the extent that large-scale responses become reunions of of people that you knew from from way back when that you knew and trusted and enjoyed working with. And you know them, they know you. You know when you've got to cover over where they're going to get tired or, or maybe miss a step and they know you where you miss a stitch and and you back each other up and it's a so there's that mm-hmm. there's that uh, um, so yeah i would do it again i guess the short answer to your question is yes i would do it again but at the same time we may be we may be like the tommy lee jones and the guys that went up in the rocket ship to stop the comet from striking the earth mm-hmm. old and expendable <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you never know, a large enough incident, uh, you know, there's there's going to be a need for many, many experienced people who can come in, hit the ground running and yeah. get a response rolling quickly and be able to effectively manage those external communications and the media positioning and, you know, getting those press releases out quickly and through the approval process quickly you know, all of those are things that can slow and hamper a response. So, hey, experienced hands mm-hmm. can do that well. We've talked a little bit around some of the communications aspects of dealing with a crisis. I wanted to zero in for a minute here, Ed. And when you think about the public information officers who you've worked with over the course of your career and liaison officers, you know, there's a, a particular skill set there, much as there is for, you know, an op section chief or a planning section chief. But as you've worked with PIOs and liaison officers, what do you see as sort of the, the critical skills that, you know, will enable somebody in that role to be successful? It goes back to the scaling of the response. If 
If it's a fairly small response, yeah, if it's a fairly small response, then the PIO doesn't shift their day job behaviors too much. They'll do some some media briefings and they'll also coach management to do media briefings. Where I've seen public information folks get in trouble is not realizing, not getting ahead of the response and not growing the PIO staff fast enough. One, one of the most difficult things I have seen in a response, and, and honestly, I've said this lots of times, sometimes the most difficult thing to do in a response is to get help, is to understand, A, that you need to ask for it, and then what are you going to do when all these people show up at the door? Getting and using help effectively is critical, and where I've seen PIOs get in trouble is they don't grow it fast enough. They don't get in front of it fast enough. That hurts. That really hurts. I think to the individual, and, and I can speak from personal experience, it feels like a, a giving up of control to build a large organization. There's, there's a certain sense of you used to be able to do it all. How come I can't do it all anymore? But as the incident grows, or even more importantly, as you attempt to get ahead of the incident, you've got to devolve some of those aspects of performance to other people and let them do it and let them be successful at what they do and begin to become the conductor of an orchestra as opposed to the lead singer. I just appreciate that input. I think it's good input. What's interesting about it is that communicators don't necessarily focus on effective management skills. So that's something we need to be thinking about is, Tom, as you say, how do we get ready to do a press conference? We drill to it, but here in this point, we probably need to figure out how do we actually build a functioning jack? And how do you hit the ground running? Right. That's that's one of the big challenges that I've seen in in PIO and liaison functions is, you know, hey, we're we're starting today. You know, we've got 15 or 20 operational periods coming. What's our plan? Right. And where people get lost is, well, today I can only focus on today and getting a press conference or a press release or whatever it is. And we really coach people to, hey, have a 72 hour plan right away. Right. right. And I've even developed, you know, a template 72 hour communications plan. So if I walk in the door as PIO, I already have a schedule for 72 hours of what's going to happen regarding communications. And at least I know where I want to go over that time period, right? And there's no reason you can't walk in the door as a PIO and have something like that already in your mind and ready to go. And there will be lots of curveballs coming in at you, uh, but there's no reason not to sort of show that leadership right up front. And, and you mentioned liaison and liaison and public information are joined at the hip. Mm -hmm. So in so many ways, both are reaching out perhaps to different constituencies, but both are reaching out to collect information and present information and to make sure that, that those things are, are getting through. And, and liaison is a tremendous source of, uh, it's a great way to avoid surprises. It's a, mm -hmm. if, if you can, you can hear it rumbling in the liaison, you know, it's coming sooner or later and you can head it off at the pass. And so it's a, a a tremendous source, and 
getting liaison and the JIC to work together and basically understand each other's boundaries, but also have a very porous boundary for information sharing and, and information, re, you know, retrieval um, is also a challenge and part of that design of the JIC you talked about, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. For our listeners who may not be familiar with some of the jargon here, liaison is one of those critical roles within an incident management team that's focused on government relations, on regulatory relations, and on keeping you know, the government regulatory stakeholders informed about what's happening. It's, it's so critical um, because it keeps regulatory agencies informed, but it also keeps local government entities, municipalities, counties, uh, all those elected officials informed. And it's the role of this liaison officer team to do that. And of course, the information that they're using to communicate to those stakeholders is generally developed from the public information team within that command. One of the challenges I've seen, Ed, in, in various incidents that I've worked is working closely with regulators in a command or in a joint information center, particularly sort of West Coast, California, Washington State seem to be, you know, particularly um, prickly dealing with companies. I wonder what advice would you have for, you know, staff who are going to find themselves working on a major incident in a joint information center with those regulators? Well, um, every agency is different and it's good to know who the members of Unified Command are going to be. And it's good to know how they work and what you can expect during a response. And some agencies will will bring a storm, and some will bring calm weather. And you're not going to uh, you're not going to change that, but you can work positively with it and be a positive experience for them. I've, I have found that even the agency persona is going to be is going to be what it's going to be, and the people always uh, respond to honesty and, and a positive outlook. My, my experience on that is you just need to go in with a very patient attitude and knowing that there's going to be tension in the room and just do your best to honor the commitments that your company's made and to support this response effort while dealing with all of the other issues that you're likely to hear from an agency. That's right. Nothing beats delivery. Delivery on promises is everything. One of, the, one of the best examples of, of it working well was when, as a, as a response progresses, agencies shift from emergency response mode, if you will, to more fundamental agency roles of enforcement and, and those kind of things and permitting. And as we progress through a particular response, we agreed that it would be a good idea for the crisis manager for that response to sit down with the agency and say, look, up to now, we've been working very closely together in public to proceed through this response. But as we go further, we understand that you may want to distance yourself from us so that you know, you can more effectively do your enforcement role. I cannot tell you 
how much that agency appreciated that discussion mm -hmm. and and it actually built a stronger relationship with that agency really interesting point there ed because i've not heard of you know an incident commander uh, opening the door for that distancing within the unified command it makes perfect sense uh, but typically, you know, we find it's a forced kind of issue politically where the politics have entered into the response now. And so the agencies feel uh, pressure to disengage with the company uh, who's who's the responsible party for an incident. Well, having that discussion was not at the incident level. It was at the crisis level. And it was and it was the right place to do it because then the more politically driven aspects of the agency could consider it and parse out the parts that were going to stay with the response and, and partner with the response and be public partners and parse out the parts that we're not going to be partnering with and so forth. And everybody did it uh, with eyes wide open. And it became another aspect of, of cooperation. It actually smoothed things out because it avoided that wedging that you alluded to, Tom. Well, I have about exhausted the questions I have for Ed, although to be honest, I could talk to you all day about this stuff, Ed, and, and never get tired of it. I, you know, I kind of just want to throw it back to you and just say anything else that, uh, that you'd like to add here in terms of, you know, your advice to, to people who want to become better leaders in a crisis? Or what would your sort of guidance and recommendations be? I guess you always have to ask yourself, what am I not doing that I should be doing? Because there's always more to do than you can do. Be able to have that discussion with your command staff as an incident commander and say, okay, what am I missing? You know, one of the things I would strongly recommend is if you feel like you're being trapped in the command post, always be inclined to get out, be out with the rest of the unified command, get out there, see what's going on, talk to people, praise them, cheer them on, thank them, and, and also get out there and take a few punches in public because you are gonna. It's not a pleasant, always a pleasant feeling to be on a response, but it can be a very productive and satisfying thing if you do it right. Ed, thank you very much for your time today and for sharing your expertise from various aspects, uh, given your career history. Uh, really appreciate your spending time with us today. And we look forward to talking to you sometime again in the future, if that's okay. Oh, I'd, I'd be excited. I'm kind of flattered you guys thought of me. So thanks. Thank you, Ed. Thank you.